We appreciate you leading us today. And I do also want to express thanks to uh, Chase and all of our staff and volunteers uh, for the uh, marriage weekend. It was a great weekend. And I hope to see us host something uh, similar to that again. And um, just hope that you will be able to be a part of it. And we always try to bring in the very best people that we can. And I think that was accomplished this weekend. Father, thank you for your word now. And we ask you to guide us as we engage it. Help us to have uh, ears to hear, hearts open to you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand um, more fully how to be your salt and your light in a culture, Lord, that needs your salt and needs your light from your people. We ask you, Lord, to help us to be that with the right disposition of humility and, Lord, filled with your love. And, Lord, that our answers will be given in gentleness and with respect with people, Lord, who may not be ready to hear your truth in the beginning, but, God, by the work of your spirit and the power of your word that you can bring them to understand and to respond as they are to you and to eternal life. And so, God, we ask you now by your, uh, Lord, power to help these things that we are about to say to be driven deeply into our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Entitled the message today, uh, Choose Life. <clears throat> Anyone with any measure of conscience had to be moved by uh, the video secretly recorded and released by the Center for Medical Progress and 2015 that showed Planned Parenthood employees being involved in selling aborted babies uh, and parts of babies for a profit. It was disgusting and even honest liberals who support abortion rights were nauseated by what was uncovered. Ever since uh, that time, a, a PR campaign has been waged by Planned Parenthood and the leftist apparatus to try to cover up or to dissuade us that that wasn't what they were doing. But you remember this particular lady here next on the screen. Her name is uh, Mary Gatter. She was a medical director for Planned Parenthood, uh, Pasadena, and San Gabriel Valley. And she was sitting in the booth, and they were talking about prices and things. And she said, uh, it's been years since I've talked about compensation, so let me just figure out what others are getting. And if this is in the ballpark, that's fine. If it's still low, we can bump it up. Uh, I want a Lamborghini. And so, you know, ever since that time, again, Planned Parenthood has waged a campaign, a media campaign, um, and the leftist apparatus with them, including most of the American mainline press, to support, uh, that supports their cause, uh, to say that, uh, that this was uh, not true, what was going on. Uh, one aspect of that cam campaign you may have heard is that these videos were, quote, heavily edited. And this presented a distorted picture. But the two studies that were done on the videos proved just the opposite. There's nothing out of whack on the videos. They were not heavily edited, edited like any other type of thing when you're interviewing somebody. And the videos exposed the fact that Planned Parenthood employees were involved in seeking to sell aborted baby parts for profit. Now, if you go to Wikipedia... It's not a reliable source. A lot of times it's not a reliable source on this because part of the PR campaign has gone on and tried to uh, regurgitate the Planned Parenthood case about this to say that that's not what they were doing. But quietly, an investigation has continued to go on by a House Select Committee. And in December, a House Select Committee gave eight criminal referrals recommending law enforcement pursue further investigation into the group in various parts of our nation 
in relationship to the selling of baby parts for profit. Um, National Review has done a good um, job of keeping up with this particular issue. There's a link there to an article that National Review put out uh, last year called No, the Planned Parenthood Videos Are Not a Lie. And you can't link to it off of our PowerPoint, but um, if you write that down or you can go online and get it, you can link to that article as well as some coming out in December and even in January of this year about this investigation. And if you don't use the Internet or whatever, I provided about 30 copies of this article for you at the Welcome Center if you want to pick one up before you leave today. So... Planned Parenthood's campaign to cover up has been debunked, even though the media doesn't show that. They seek to deny the obvious that this wicked organization was involved in something as evil as the Nazis who slaughtered the Jews and used their body parts for their own profit. This day, January 15, 2017, has been designated as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It always comes near the National Sanctity of Human Life day established by President Ronald Reagan, who issued a presidential proclamation on January the 13th, 1984, designating Sunday, January 22nd, 1984, as National Sanctity of Human Life Day, noting then that it was the 11th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, in which the Supreme Court issued a ruling that guaranteed women access to abortion. It has been some years since I've designated or given a message to this in particular. I sometimes preach related to life issues on this Sunday. Most of the time I don't. Uh, The last time I preached uh, on Sanctity of Human Life was two years ago in 2015 in which we dealt with the issue of foster care and adoption, that that has to be a part of who we are as God's people in relationship to uh, caring about life. But it's been uh, several years since I have focused on what I'm going to do today And so since this sad subject has had light shown upon it again by these videos, I want to take time to remind us again, the choir was singing about these these things we believe, this is what we believe. Well, I want to talk to you today about what we believe about this particular matter, about this ethical matter of life, because we need to look in the Word of God, for God's revelation should form our ultimate position on all matters, regardless of how the culture may be feeling about it, at any given moment. So our text today is in the Gospel of Mark, the one that I read to you where we see Jesus touching children, and it's just a good uh, starting point for us to talk about this subject as we see the Lord receiving, blessing, and caring about children. So if you open your Bibles back to Mark chapter 10, and we'll be in verses uh, 13 through 16, I'm not going to read it again, but that was the scriptural call to worship. And in this section of Mark, Jesus displays for us what is expressed throughout the Word of God. And that is, we see the Lord's love for the weak and for the powerless. And so when you open up Mark chapter 13, you'll, I mean Mark chapter 10, you'll notice the verse 12 verses are devoted to the topic of divorce. Here Jesus addresses this because women could be divorced on a whim in that culture, in both uh, Israel really and, and in the Roman Empire in particular, and they had few rights to protect themselves. And so Jesus here lays out his, his position, and then we see the issue of the children. So we have women, we have children, both in this chapter. And the children are trying to come to him, and to the consternation of his disciples. They were seeking to keep the children away from him. And they were following the norms of their culture, where children were to be you know, seen but not heard, to be in the background. 
But Jesus here says, allow the children to come to me. He uses this as an illustration of how a person would come to him for salvation. But also, we see here the picture of the Lord's love for children. So he receives them, he blesses them, he hugs them. And what you and I need to understand is that for Jesus to do this was a radical act. You know, it was a radical act for Jesus to talk to the woman at the well. That went against cultural norms, right? It was a radical act for Jesus to talk about these good Samaritans. And this is a radical act for Jesus here to, uh, to say, no, you disciples, you're wrong. I want these children to come to me. And he allows them to come, and he holds them and blesses them. He values them. And so we see God's concern here for that which is weak and vulnerable. And so for today, on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I want to remind us of how incredibly pro-life the Lord is in relationship to all human life, from the womb to the tomb, and how this should be something that impacts our lives and how we live in this very imperfect world. So I want to talk to you about this along three lines. First of all, as we interact with the Bible, and I'm only going to be able to give you, you know, a smattering of Scripture. But I hope the smattering lets you know that this is part of a bigger whole that lays out how God's disposition, what it looks like in relationship to this issue. First of all, we see in the Bible that God's heart is for life. Now, it ought to be obvious and self-evident if you think about it that the God who created us, right, human life, would come down on the side of life. That should be a self-evident truth. And yet it seems that mankind has not uh, gotten that memo Throughout uh, history in this world, continually we see humans displaying the idea that life is not valuable as they commit atrocities upon one another and treat life as though it is cheap. And we think about the 20th century, the great century of progress, right? The triumph of rationalism and all these sorts of things. We must remember the 20th century is one of the most murderous centuries, perhaps the most murderous century in all of human history. Life is cheap, even among those who think that they are technologically advanced. And so we see around the world that Pol Pot murdered 2 million people in Cambodia. Stalin murdered 30 million of his own people in Russia. Mao in China murdered 65 million of his own population. You think about that, 65 million people slaughtered in China. And in Rwanda, in just 100 days, the Hutu tribe slaughtered at least 800,000. I mean, you think it was more. Tutus, another tribe. And in our nation, with the legalization of abortion in 1973, a marked increase has been seen from that time till now. And you realize that since 1973, in our nation, this enlightened nation, this good land, technologically advanced, rational nation, that in our nation, since 1973, almost 60 million children, that's numbers getting up there, is it not, with what happened in China, 60 million children have died through abortion. Now, while God has been very clear about the fact that we do not have the right as human beings to take another innocent human life, the Scripture says in Exodus 20, verse 13, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. I don't know how God could be more clear about that. And by the way, I, I'm not dealing with this today. Some people raise the issue sometimes of how can you be pro-life when it comes to babies in the womb and be for capital punishment. Well, I can be that way because God's that way, as I understand the Bible. Um, the Bible, uh, the Bible says in the book of uh, 
Uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, if you recall, it says in Genesis 9, 6, that whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. In Romans 13, it says God has given the state the right to bear the sword, the sword of justice. And so while the Bible condemns the slaughter of innocent life, life that, like in the womb, it does not condemn the putting to death of people who take other people's lives. We don't have the right to do that as individuals, but it's certainly given to the authorities uh, to do that. But I'm not dealing with that today. I'm dealing with the issue about those that are innocent in the sense of not having committed crimes in that particular way. And in that sense, nobody is permitted to take their life. Government isn't permitted to sanction the taking of that life. And we are not permitted to take that life in, in that particular way. And that would include then the mass murders of innocent people in Russia and China and other places at the hands of government. He's also made it clear that he considers life in the womb to be human, to be a person from conception, and thus unborn children fall from the earliest moment of conception within the domain of that command, thou shalt not murder. Now, over the past decades, with the debate over abortion in our nation, those who are for abortion on demand have sought to throw a lot of dust in the air to deceive people about life in the womb. Early on in the 1970s, before technology could show us as much about the womb, and women were sometimes told that this is just a mass, just a blob, basically, a conglomeration of cells, not really a life. And then we have seen used throughout the decades uh, the word fetus as distinct from the word baby. That's often you won't speak of babies when we're talking about these issues. We use maybe the word fetus because most people don't know that the word fetus from the Latin simply means baby or unborn child. And so, what does the Bible have to say then? Why do we say that God says that from the time a baby is conceived in the womb, it falls under that domain of being innocent life, that government does not have the right to take that life, sanction the taking of that life, individuals do not have the right to take that life, it falls under the command of Exodus 20 verse 13, that thou shalt not murder, why do we say that? Well, let me just kind of take you on a little trip through the Bible for a moment to help you see, again, a smattering of verses to help us see that life begins at conception. First of all, in Hosea chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, Hosea the prophet, the New Living Translation brings out the best sense of the word, so I'm going to quote it. I think I have it on the screen. But if you turn to Hosea right after the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, Hosea writes and says, The glory of Israel will fly away like a bird, for your children would die at birth. This is God beginning to bring punishment and judgment upon Israel for their idolatry. For your children would die at birth, perish in the womb, or never even be conceived. Even if your children do survive to grow up, I will take them away from you. Now, if you're using the NIV, it talks about Ephraim's glory. That's the same thing. The glory of Israel will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. That's the NIV trying to put this in the terminology of, of our everyday common language. But the New Living Translation is a better translation here. When it says that the glory of Israel will fly away like a bird for your children will die when at birth 
And the idea that their children, children will do what? Perish where? In the womb. Or your children will never even be what? Conceived. The implication is if they're conceived, then they would be what? Children. The same children that would be in the womb as those who would be birthed and who would grow up. And in the Old Testament, prenatal life is valued as human life. We know that because of Old Testament law as it was applied to the injuring of a child in the womb. Penalties were applied if you injured a child in the womb. You'll find that in the book of Exodus chapter 21. So in Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, Exodus 20, 13. So then we continue into Exodus 21. We will look at the giving of the law. When we think about the law of the Old Testament, this became Israel's law used in the court. This is what the judge would use to keep order in the land, to impose penalties on those who broke the law. This was not only the religious law, it was also the moral law of the land. There was no separation of church and state in that particular way. And Orthodox Jews, still today in some parts of the world, desire to set up you know, their own courts to enforce their law in distinction to the secular courts of the land as they seek to order life in their communities. But if you look in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, and again, I'll begin with the New Living Translation. It says, now suppose two people are fighting. In the process, they heard a pregnant woman, so her child, and the word child is the word yeled in Hebrew. It's the word for child. So that her child is born prematurely. So this is a, two guys are fighting. We assume they're guys. They're usually the ones fighting. Although we have more of that today with women and girls. It gets on YouTube sometimes. The girls are meaner than the guys when they fight. You ever watch that? That's why I never fought with girls growing up. Uh, never, never, never. Um, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, she gives birth prematurely. But notice there's no serious injury. The offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, either to her or to the baby, if there is serious injury, you are to take what? Life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The idea here is that if they die, they come under the penalty of Genesis 9 verse 6. You're to take life for life. So we see here that the Old Testament law was applied in that particular way to the death of a child in the womb as a result of two guys fighting and this woman gets injured and the baby dies. What a contrast the Bible is in its perspective to people like Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. And there she is. Um, Planned Parenthood endorsed Hillary Clinton in January of 2016 first candidate that they uh, really endorsed in that way, she took that as an honor. And they said that the whole platform of what they believed was uh, reflected in Mrs. Clinton. And Hillary Clinton, in a speech in which they gave her an award some years ago, said she was in awe of Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger said that uh, in her book, Women and the New Race, that the most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Margaret Sanger was a racist, and she believed in eugenics. That is, she wanted to create a pure race of people, 
and to clean the gene pool, and abortion was one of the ways that that was going to be done. And in particular, she used it on the black race in our culture. And never be fooled that when you look where Planned Parenthood clinics are located, it isn't simply there in relationship to try to serve the poor. It is there to try to impose their will and their belief in eugenics going all the way back to her. She's their founder. They still hold her up in high regard. That was her view. That's what she was about. That's the same time. She, she uh, admired Stalin, and she had that same disposition that the Nazis were practicing eugenics, trying to create the super race, were they not? This is who this woman was. And her grandson, Alexander Sanger, in 2004, in his book, Beyond Choice, Reproductive Freedom in the 21st Century, he said, quote, having abortion legal and accessible is morally right, not morally wrong. Friend, I I think I will take the word of the Creator over him. And the Creator says that it is wrong and that it's murder. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find that same theme reinforced. Life is sacred, whether in the womb or in the cradle or in the life of a small child. I don't know if you ever noticed this before, but I want you to see it this morning. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke with me to two verses, and then I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. I want to show you something about the New Testament's view of life at different stages. When we go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 41, we find uh, John the Baptist in the womb. You remember Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. You remember the story? We just came through Christmas. You should know that one. And so, in Luke 1, 41, so Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house. Do you remember? And verse 41 of Luke 1 says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the what? Baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So underline the word baby. And then if you go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, one chapter over in verse 12. When we see Jesus in the manger. So here we have John the Baptist in the womb, right? Now we have Jesus, baby Jesus, in the manger. Luke 2, verse 12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a what? Baby wrapped in cloths and lying in the manger. Underline the word baby. And then if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul is writing to his young uh, protege, the young preacher, Pastor Timothy, who he has mentored, and who he's left at Ephesus now to pastor that great congregation. And he's reminding Timothy about his life and about God's hand upon his life, God's call upon his life, calling him to be faithful, to stick in there as a pastor who's going through some difficult circumstances. And Paul says to him in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, about his life, Let's let's read in verse 14 so we don't begin in the middle of the sentence. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have uh, have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now underline the word uh, infancy there. Some translations have from a child. Did you know that in all three of those texts, where you have John the Baptist in the womb, baby Jesus in the manger, Timothy, a little boy who's able to learn doctrine 
the truth at the hands of his mother and his grandmother. The Greek word that's used in all three places is the word brephos. The New Testament makes no distinction between the life in the womb, the life in the manger, the life of the toddler who is able to learn at the hands of a mother and a grandmother. And so that is the way the New Testament. Now, that view of life, you have to understand, was not one that was held widely in the ancient world. Sometimes I think we think that the things we're facing in this culture, moral issues, are something like something's new on the scene. So we're dealing with sexual identity issues and homosexuality. Like this is something that that the Western world has never understood before. (laughs) Well, the church encountered that 2,000 years ago when she was birthed. And God moved and converted the world, the European world, through that. That's why that went by the wayside for a long time. And when we think about the idea of abortion, this is not something new that has burst on the scene in the 20th century. When the early church was birthed in the Roman Empire, abortion was practiced both by chemical and mechanical means. That is both by taking things, as people do today, to cause an abortion, or by somebody physically uh, removing the child from the womb. The ancient writer Juvenal refers to the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian had an affair with his niece Julia, and Julia became pregnant. And the emperor Domitian ordered that the pregnancy be terminated by abortion. Not only was abortion widespread in the Roman world, the culture was no less cruel toward those who made it to birth. An example is found in a document that was found in Alexandria, Egypt, dated June 17th, 1 B.C., which contains a letter from a husband. It's a man in 1 B.C. before Jesus came, right when Jesus was coming, Roman Empire, Alexandria, Egypt. A letter was found from that time where a man was writing to his wife, writing her a letter. And she's expecting. And he's writing the letter as supposing perhaps the child may have already been born. And he wrote this to his wife. He said, quote, if it was a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. And many did this. It sounds very much kind of like China's one-child policy and what's happened to many children in that nation as a result of that. And so what happened in the ancient world is that people would take their babies that they didn't want and they would put them on the city walls to lead them for the animals to get them. Or they would lead them for unscrupulous people to come and get them. And then some of them would raise them to be gladiators Some of them would raise them for sex slavery and prostitution. And some of them would actually inflict uh, scars or brokenness upon a child to make them weak, limping, whatever, disfigured, so that they could get more money begging. And that went on widespread in the ancient world. But when the church was born... These new people belonging to God, filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak out against all these forms of God-hatred and hatred of life. And they began to call that nation, that world, to honor life. Christians intervened. That's where early orphanages came from. That's where the care of orphans and children came from in the ancient world. And that way it came with the birth of the church. So therefore, we can see how radical was Jesus' action even in 
in the Jewish community where children would be more respected there than they would have been in the Roman world, but it was a strong action when he affirmed God's love for children pre and postnatal. His will is that life be protected from conception forward because God values life. God loves life. But not only do we see this in the Scripture, as we look back through church history. Now for us, as Christians, understand that you know we, we look at church history not as our authority. The Bible is our authority. But we can learn from church history. And through church history, we see sometimes um, they got it right. They didn't always get it right. But as they studied the Word and dealt with the Word, they increasingly got it right. And as we look throughout history, we see that God's church, His true church, has always been for life. Since the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the church was birthed as people who responded to the good news about Jesus and became His disciples. In Jesus was found not only life, but eternal life. And the moment a person would repent of their sin and come humbly as a child, with that innocent trust of a child, to trust Jesus, as He was saying here, Jesus says, I will give you eternal life. And if you've not received Jesus as your Savior, he invites you to come as he did these children today with that humble spirit to admit that you're a sinner, as all of us have had to do. And to say, I need to be forgiven. I need to have my life changed. I ask you to come into my life. And so we see that that happened in the ancient world. And from the beginning, when that new people began to be formed on the planet, these born-again people... And the church was birthed. As they burst on the scene in the ancient world, the church was on the side of caring for life, ministering to the vulnerable, always from the beginning, as I said. Taking these children and caring for them and also speaking out on life in the womb. Time only permits a brief survey of some historical examples to make the point. But I do want to give you a few of these which are reflective of the church's position throughout Christian history. For 2,000 years, the Christian church... The true church of Jesus has always been pro-life. So let me just share a few of those with you. Let me go all the way back to 100 A.D. You know, the New Testament was completed, probably the book of Revelation, the last completed around in the 90s. Jesus died in the 30s. The Bible's developed through the rest of the first century, completed by the 90s. But then right after that time, obviously Christians were writing and doing other things, and people were coming into the life of the church from both Jewish backgrounds, Gentile backgrounds, and so the church began to train them and prepare them for baptism. They went through a period of training before many of them, they were baptized. And one document that was used to teach them what Christians believe, you guys were thinking about this we believe today, well, they had an ancient document that they used called the Didache. It comes to the word we use didactic or teaching, written around 100 A.D., right after the completion of the New Testament. It wasn't the Bible, but it was used to instruct converts. And here's what the Didache said, just one line out of it, but here's what they were teaching these brand-new Christians. Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion or destruction. So already the church was taking what they understood the Bible to teach, teaching new Christians. Thou shalt not murder a child by abortion or destruction. Coming a little bit further along in 160 to 240 AD, we read about uh, the work of a man named Tertullian, one of the early 
theologians in the life of the church. And here's what he said, quote, In our case, murder being once forbidden, we may not even destroy a child in the womb to hinder a birth is homicide. That's Tertullian. So we go from 100 A.D. We go to the 2nd century A.D. By 300 A.D., did you know that the Romans had passed laws against abortion? Even as the gladiator contest died, that form of the cruelty to human life because of the protest of Christians to a great degree, this action also in the ancient world began to be outlawed in the Roman Empire as the church gained strength. And by 300 A.D., again, there were laws being passed against it, and this was most likely due to the influence of the church. And over time, this position became not only central in the church, but in the entire Western world, our civilization that developed, which you and I are the inheritors. As the gospel spread from Asia into Europe, into most of our ancestors, and then into other parts of the world, and as it came to the new world, that is our heritage. And so as we continue to think about church history, Basil, a 4th century writer, theologian said quote whoever deliberately commits abortion is subject to the penalty of homicide moreover those who give drugs causing abortion are deliberate murderers themselves as well as those receiving the poison that kills the fetus that was the settled position coming on up into the history of the church John Calvin theologian 1509-1564 a reformer the fountainhead of presbyterianism said quote quote he said quote the unborn child though encased in the womb of his mother is already a human being and it is a monstrous crime to rob it of life which it has not yet begun to enjoy see this is not a new issue it is an old issue And the church really doesn't have to think about this issue because God has already spoken on the issue and we just need to respond to the issue. And we see that God has been pro-life. His church has been pro-life. And so then thirdly, let me just say a word about then God's will regarding life. Since the position of the Lord and His church is firmly on the side of life, what does it have to say about you and about me and about Concord Baptist Church? living in a world where, in our own nation, millions of children continue to die by abortion. But one thing it says to us is that uh, that we, as God's people, we need to seek to defend life from conception forward. This includes the other end of life, where we should always oppose things as well, like physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. As much as we desire laws in our nation that outlaw murder and rape, etc., we should also want legislation that outlaws abortion and physician-assisted suicide, which is now legal in five states, continues to be passed on the ballots in some of our states. And we not only need to work in life in that way, but in all the other ways. We talked about adoption a couple of years ago, foster care. Our Baptist faith and message, this is a summary of the doctrine that Concord Baptist Church believes. The choir was singing about this is what we believe. If you want to know what this church believes before you become a part of it, we want you to come in with your eyes open. You can pick up some of these booklets in the Welcome Center. This is our statement of faith. It was first written in 1925 by our convention, revised in 1963, and revised again in the year 2000. I go over this in our membership class. But in Article 15, the Christian and the social order, 
just part of this says, in the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. And the article goes on talking about us to work to those ends in every sphere of the culture, from government to the arts or whatever, that we should seek to make that known. And so we need to keep educating and speaking out and praying and working within the political system to defend life. Now we understand as Christians we should always do that with gentleness and respect, with people who do not agree with us, lovingly, but we should always be willing to speak the truth about what God says. It may not always be well received. It won't always be well received. But my responsibility is simply to say, this is not my opinion. This is what God has said. And if you can show to me that this is not what God has said, perhaps I would agree with you. But God has been clear about this issue. And you know, some good news is that we're seeing the trend lines on abortion change in our nation. Used to be that somewhat slightly pro-abortion, parity, and now the trend lines on abortion and views on abortion are going in the other direction. Since 2010, there's been about a 12% decrease across the board, roughly. Some states more than others, some up 16-17% in the rate of abortion taking place. And so we just uh, want to pray in the coming years that we can see laws passed that protect life and groups like Planned Parenthood no longer funded through our tax dollars. All of that money could be given to local medical clinics, government clinics, divorce it totally from the idea of those who support and educate about abortion, and hopefully Planned Parenthood would dry up on the vine. That would be my prayer. But we need to keep educating, speaking lovingly on all of these issues but then secondly we must also make sure that we keep our ethical teaching clear within the church regarding sexuality and marriage and procreation and this kind of hit me this past year with some things I happen to be reading I think that because the church has been so strong in her support of life that every child is precious and a gift from God, that we should not ever want an abortion of a child that has been conceived even out of wedlock, that sometimes people are confused morally to the point that they justify and even celebrate their sin as though God approves of it. I see this, and I've seen it multiple times on Facebook in this past year, perhaps you have as well, in other media posted by people, some of whom I know, who've had children out of wedlock, they may be living Uh, with somebody and they're not married which Jesus dealt with in John chapter 4 and they've had a child and I see them write things and say something like this they'll say you know this child was was born this way but this was God's will and they say it in such a way as though that that also implies it was God's will Stacy was singing about thy will be done that was God's will Obviously, they reason back in this way. I have this baby, so all life is precious, right? And this baby is sovereignly here because God wanted this baby to live. Ergo, I had this baby in a relationship outside of marriage. And so that somehow then justifies my behavior. I've continued to live without being married to somebody, continued to be involved in 
sexual relations outside of marriage. They somehow reason backwards, it seems, that somehow God has blessed that. We need to do a better job of ethically teaching within the church, in particular, about how this works. It hit me one day when I was in Nashville. I had an epiphany in Nashville. Had nothing to do with country music. I was going to visit my daughter. And I was driving on the interstate, and I nearly wrecked. But I was just, uh, this came up. I don't know, my wife was sharing something with me. Maybe she was reading something, I don't know, about something like this with somebody had put up. When she said it, you know, I said, we've got to teach people that we've got to learn to distinguish between God's decretal will, if I will use that term, and God's permissive will. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, God's decretal will, some theologians would talk about that as God's hidden will. God's decrees, God's de- but I want to use it in the sense of God's ultimate sovereign will. God's will is that babies be born, right? That life comes into the world. I don't know how many, how many humans God has ordained to be born into the world. You know, I don't know. The Bible does not tell me that. But I'm sure God has a number somewhere, right? Of these, this is the human race that's going to be birthed, just as God made a number of angels and I don't see that God's making angels anymore. He made a number of angels. Some of them sinned against him. We call those the what? Demons. Some continue to serve. And there will come a time where there is uh, the last human that's going to be birthed in the sense that we are birthed here. But God chose that we would be coming into life. And we would do that um, through a mom and a dad, through sexual relations, Right? That's God's decretal will. But God also has a permissive will in that he allows us to make our own ultimate choice. We make real ethical decisions. And we're held responsible for those decisions. So when Jesus was nailed to a cross, the Bible says that this was God's ultimate will. But you who nailed him to the cross, you murdered Jesus. You committed sin. And you'll be held accountable for that. You have blood on your hands. And so just because you've had a baby outside of wedlock and God is, has decreed that children should live and be born in that way, that does, not, that does not shield you from the fact that you committed sin. And to live outside of marriage and sexuality and sexual relations is sinful. You know, the Bible is very clear on that issue. I'm just, and that we'll be held accountable not only for this sin, but for our sins. But this is a sin. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, the Bible says that uh, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. That would be fornicators is the old word. That's the idea of people who are involved in sexual relations outside of marriage. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Or Hebrews chapter 13 in verse uh, 4. We read it again where the scripture talks about this issue when it says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. There are grave warnings about sexual immorality. You know, God tells us to take care of widows and orphans. Is that right? That's his decreed will. Take care of widows and orphans. And so Don says, well, I want to take care of widows and orphans and I decide that... Uh, I'm going to do it Robin Hood's way. I'm going to come break in your house today and grab your stuff and go sell it and give it to the poor. Would that be God's will? That would not be God's will. And neither is it God's will that 
in your life that it is not sinful to, to bring children in the world apart from wedlock. And so we must proclaim and keep reasoning with people about the truth. We must understand our own ethics and live by the ethics of the Bible. If we're going to preach to the culture about any of these issues, we need to be seeking to live from within the way we ought to be living as the church. And then thirdly, we must also proclaim the great mercy and love and grace of God towards sinners. We're all sinners. We've all sinned. We all need to be forgiven. And the Lord can forgive us all of our sin if we're willing to repent. But in this area, repentance would include this, turning in the right direction. That is, that if you are sexually active outside of marriage, you turn to sexual abstinence. If you're living with somebody out of wedlock, either marry them if it's biblically okay, or get away from them and live in sexual abstinence until God brings the right person into your life that you marry in the right way. I so admire Tim Tebow as he continues to stand in this way as a strong young man in relationship to this issue. I mean, he broke up with a former Miss America because he wouldn't go to bed with her. What a great model. But he's really not our model. Ultimately, Jesus is our model. He's the standard, the Word of God. And also then, if it's involved some sense of, of abortion... Take that to the Lord and confess it. You may be here today and you may be carrying a deep secret. You made a choice when you were younger. Maybe it was an uninformed choice. And it tears you up inside. You carry tremendous amounts of guilt. I hope you don't hear my voice today as a condemning voice. I'm trying to be prophetically accurate in saying we've got to stand for life. But I also remind you that we all are sinners in need of God's grace. And he invites us to come as we are, no matter what we have done, no matter what has taken place in our life. Jesus invites us to come to receive him into our lives and to be forgiven. And you know, if that's happened to you in your life and you're carrying a tremendous amount of guilt, and we know that women who have committed and been participated in abortion sometimes carry huge amounts of guilt, psychological dysfunction, that, the pressure of that. And we have two wonderful counselors here that we could, on our campus, you can go for free if you need to work through those issues. But I just want to say this to you. Jesus loves you, and he can forgive you. And our understanding of the Bible, those children that died in that way, just as we miscarried a child about three months along that we named Isaiah, those children are with Jesus. And you have that opportunity someday in glory to be reunited with that child, with that person. And to walk through eternity with them because of Jesus and what he has done. And maybe today as we sing this song, Just As I Am, right where you are, you may need to call unto the Lord to say, Lord, as I am, I come to you today. I want to remind you, and Herman, I want us to sing this stanza today, if we can, instead of just the first two. I want you to uh, sing stanza five. It's on 307 in the hymnals, and I don't know if the guys can get it on the screen or not, but it says, Just as I am, thou wilt receive. How wonderful. Jesus will receive us. We'll welcome, pardon. How wonderful. Be pardoned of all of our sin. Welcome. Pardon.
cleanse. Well, sometimes you, you feel we still feel so broken, empty inside, as Stacy was singing about. Cleanse. He will welcome, pardon, cleanse. And what's that next word? Relief. <laughs> That's for you. And maybe today you need to call upon Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior to forgive you. And always know we're here to talk with you, cry with you, pray with you. Because we all have to go to the foot of Jesus, do we not, for forgiveness. But what a great, great Savior. Great Savior he is. Maybe you've been visiting with us and the Lord is leading you to be part of this fellowship. You understand what we believe. This is where God wants you to park your life and serve him. We invite you to come today. Perhaps you've not been baptized, but you need to take that step in your life. The Lord may be leading you in that direction today. Whatever he may be laying upon your heart, we invite you to come as you are as we stand together and pray and then sing. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you for being, for life. We pray you'd help us in a culture that, Lord, is hurting in so many ways. Keep our hearts tender and sensitive to those around us, even those who vehemently disagree with us for their own reasons sometimes. God, help us to speak the truth in love. We pray, Lord, as a church that um, you would just help us to continue to be able to preach the message of grace. And Lord, uh, as our people, we encourage them to get involved in organizations outside of the church, like the National Right to Life. And Lord, you know our desire is just to centrally preach week in and week out most of the time on just the simple things of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that we never raise unnecessary barriers with people coming to you over things that are seen as being political. And for us, and for you, Lord, we know this is not political, but it is in our society. So help us as we navigate these, Lord, uh, tricky waters at times to love people and yet at the same time to be truthful. Uh, God, we pray that we would be known as a church that, uh, like you, received sinners. You received us. You put us together. This church received me to become a member 13 years ago as a redeemed sinner. And I thank you for letting me be a part of this family. And Lord, we invite others to come as you so lead them. So help us now as we sing. Lord, that we would respond to you as we are. In Jesus' name.